Content warning. This episode contains difficult histories and personal narratives that could be traumatic for some listeners. Content includes violence, death, and racism. Please be advised. One of the world's oldest cultural phenomena are ghosts and stories of the unknown. For generations, spirits, cryptids, and other entities have omnipresently coexisted with humanity. On this particularly spooky episode, we explore how interpreters confront these spectral, paranormal entities and the places they inhabit. This is the world of the unknown on Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour. My name is Jacob Wolf, And I'm Gray Wilson. And today, as mentioned in our introduction, we are talking about ghosts, cryptids, and creatures. And um, we're going to start off the episode by talking about our personal experiences with these things, since that is ultimately what allows these to proliferate in interpretation and at these sites. Indeed. Um, almost everyone has had an experience at some point in their life with something paranormal in one way or another, whether it's ghost stories, supposed cryptid sightings, or even family folklore about haunted objects. In my case, I spent multiple summers attending camps over the course of my childhood, and at these camps, stories regarding cryptids are my first memory of such experiences. I personally can recall the counselors telling us stories about the Torch Lake Monster of northern Michigan, which was popularized by the YMCA, and although its origins are not in Kalamazoo, we often heard stories of how it perhaps made its way to our area and could be in the very lake that we were next to. Stories like this, over the course of my childhood, made it very entertaining, and for me, sparked an interest in what the world may have to offer outside of plain sight. Yeah, absolutely. I think of the experience I had um, more recently, because of course I had experiences throughout my childhood of ghost stories and stories about cryptids and such, but um, I remember that this even carried on into my college years. Um, when working at the uh, university archives, I had a co-worker one day who approached me and uh told me about a sighting that he had while uh, driving down a northern Michigan road. And as he was driving down the road, he described it as a deer on its hind legs. And uh, it obviously disturbed him enough to tell me this, in which I had uh, thought immediately that, oh, that has to be a Wendigo, um, which is an old kind of spiritual cryptid that uh, exists in Native American folklore. And um, when I showed him a picture of it, he immediately went, ah, okay, yep, and um, totally freaked out. And um, that's just one in a myriad of just different cryptid and paranormal experiences I've had throughout my life personally and or just, you know, knowing these stories and stuff like that. So, yeah, they, 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 really, uh, they really proliferate across uh, individuals and cultures. Yeah, and to build off of that, we can observe the history of it. Cryptozoology, meaning the study of hidden animals, is the scientific search for animals whose existence has not been proven. 
This includes looking for living examples of animals that are considered extinct, animals whose existence lacks physical evidence but which appear in myths, legends, or are reported, and wild animals dramatically outside of their normal geographic ranges. As is described by the International Cryptozoology Museum in reference to French scholar Bernard Heuvelmans, quote, his definition of cryptozoology itself was exacting, for it gives his sense of what a cryptid is. The scientific study of hidden animals, of still unknown animal forms about which only testimonial and circumstantial evidence is available or material evidence considered insufficient by some, end quote. It comes from the Greek word kryptos, meaning hidden, unknown, secret, enigmatic, or mysterious, hence literally the study of hidden animals. The term was brought to the attention of the public by Hoivelmans, but also by a man named Ivan T. Sanderson. Both gentlemen are said to have coined the term themselves by means of their writing, although it was unbeknownst to each other, and during roughly the same time period. Heuvelmans published On the Track of Unknown Animals, and Sanderson published Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life. These books, which soon became international bestsellers, were the first mass-produced examples of literature regarding cryptozoology. During the last half of the 20th century, interest in sightings and traditions dealing with quote-unquote monsters moved from a shadowy world of travelogues to an academic respectability and beyond. And as well as this, it evolved into a booming tourism industry as people today flock to the furthest corners of the world to perhaps catch a glimpse of these unknown beings. According to the International Museum of Cryptozoology, Hoevelmans had argued from its beginning that cryptozoology should be undertaken with a scientific rigor, but with an open-minded, interdisciplinary approach. He also stressed that attention should be given to local, urban, and folkloric sources regarding such creatures, arguing that while often layered and unlikely and fantastic elements, folktales can have small grains of truth and important information regarding undiscovered organisms. The field of cryptozoology today continues to tempt the hopeful and the adventurous with the possibility of existence. Popular interest in cryptozoology has been fueled by a recent publishing frenzy of encyclopedias, dictionaries, and guides devoted to the subject, as well as by unprecedented opportunities for enthusiasts to collect data and exchange stories via the internet. An episode of the Discovery Channel's Animal Planet says, With the advancement of science and technology, not all cryptids have remained in the realm of hearsay. And ghosts, in the same way as cryptids, have fascinated curious minds for thousands of years. Belief in ghosts is based on the notion that a human spirit is separable from its body and may maintain its existence after the body's death. In fact, in many societies, funeral rituals were undertaken and have evolved in order to prevent the ghost from haunting the living. A place that is haunted is thought to be associated by the haunting spirit with some strong emotion of the past whether it's remorse, fear, or the terror of a violent death. Individuals who are haunted are believed to be responsible for, or even associated with, the ghost's unhappy past experience. The traditional visual manifestations of haunting include ghostly apparitions, the displacement of objects, or the appearance of strange lights, as well as auditory signs such as disembodied laughter and screams. Tales of specific ghosts are still common in living folklore worldwide, and the telling of elaborate, grisly ghost stories, often in an ominous setting, is a popular pastime in many groups. 
Like cryptids, the advancement of science and technology has created a newfound frenzy amongst ghost hunters who search for the proof of their existence. Absolutely. The, um, these belief systems that are rather old and have sat around for quite a while, um, particularly with ghosts, have been uh, made contemporary, uh, as Gray illustrated, um, partially with uh, the uh, advent of cryptozoology. Um, ultimately, uh, this was promulgated by uh, innovations in technology that uh, arose in the 19th century. Um, this can date back to the creation and dawn of photography, for example. Very early on in the mid-19th century, spirit photographs constituted a very large portion of its use. These depicted ectoplasmic entities that hovered over their relatives, these entities representing uh, those who were dead. And uh, they were used for a variety of purposes, but in the end, it promulgated that belief system in ghosts, that folk belief in the unknown. And as photography developed and then motion picture filmography became a thing, uh, this made way into cryptids and other entities as well. Uh, individuals are well aware of the famous video of Bigfoot or the photograph of the Loch Ness Monster and how these really promoted and proliferated these folk tales throughout several cultures across the world. And this also relates to EVP and audio recordings as well, which are used to often record the voices of the dead or distant cryptid monsters. And all these new technological advancements have played a huge role in making these folk tales proliferate. And these are being used in several types of mediums. Uh, they were used in newspapers, um, they were used through television, and now uh, they proliferate through the internet, especially on YouTube, where several programs that dedicate themselves to these topics have a cult following as popular entertainment sources. For example, BuzzFeed is a very popular YouTube channel that gets millions of views in doing episodes about cryptids about the paranormal and the criminal world and things that are unanswered and unknown. And these BuzzFeed unsolved episodes create an entertainment narrative that proliferates and promulgates these very complex folk tales that have existed throughout generations. In these episodes, you have the skeptic Shane and believer Ryan, which brings forth that same logical and scientific interest that cryptozoology has in ghosts and other types of narratives and folktales. And it creates just a fun program which intertwines these folktales with a general experience, a sort of spooky experience where uh, they try to talk to these ghosts and there's music in the background and there's jumps and all the things that in modern media get people interested in these different topics. And later in this episode, we'll talk a bit more about how this fits in the field of interpretation, but Overall, these programs and this new technology that has arisen over the past 200 years has played a great role in allowing these different folktales of ghosts, cryptids, etc. to proliferate. And now we're going to get into a new section of our podcast episode today where we're going to have a quick fire with our co-worker Garrett and interpret on the spot 
these very folk tales within the context of what we talked about. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Gray, for having me today. I'm really excited to be here and to um, drum up maybe some of the some of the most famous and interesting folklore um, that has made its way into the public imagination of Michiganders. Um, so I think to start off, we are going to be talking about probably one of the most popular urban legends in Michigan. Uh, chances are, if you grew up in Michigan or even in the Midwest, you have heard some anecdotes or just some passive, um, you know, stories or interpretations of what is known as the Dogman. So the Michigan Dogman and its legend involves a tall dog-like creature with piercing yellow eyes, a screaming howl, you know, all the common archetypical markings of, of a beast, basically. So it's not like a werewolf, it's not like Bigfoot, but instead you'll find the dogman roaming around in the northern woods of the Lower Peninsula, um, as well as in, you know, various uh, counties within actually the Upper Peninsula as well. Um, so the origins of this myth are claimed actually by Steve Cook, who is, you know, at that time a DJ at a Traverse City radio station. Um, he claims that he actually started the myth when he made up a song about the Dogman entitled uh, The Legend. And this was supposed to be an April Fool's Day joke in 1987. Um, however, what, you know, Steve Cook kind of uh, failed to recognize at the time or what he underestimated was that uh, people were going to start hearing this legend and quickly start to corroborate it with actual lived stories of their encounters um, with a creature that really closely matches the description that he laid out. Um, so for example, you know, one man recalled an incident with a beast in uh, 1938 when he was approached by a pack of dogs as he was hunting in the woods. Um, you know, when he fired a rifle into the air, most of the dogs ran away, but one dog in the pack just stood up and glared at him for a few seconds before it started sprinting away. Um, and actually, the very first reports of the dogman date back 100 years before the legend even began uh, in 1887, when there were two lumberjacks who claimed that they saw a creature with a man's body and a dog's head. Um, and there were also similar reports from French fur traders dating as far back as the early 1800s. So Rachel Clark with the Michigan History Center, uh, you know, did an interview with NPR recently that kind of walked us through the legend and the sightings of the Michigan Dogman, which date back all the way to the 1800s. Um, so Clark says, quote, the early reports are usually of men working in the woods who encounter this beast during their time there. And then over the years, it's a lot of times people who are, again, alone, either on an isolated road or in the woods. Their encounters are similar enough. They do talk about this beast coming out of the woods. It's very agile. It jumps in front of their car or in front of them. It scratches at their houses or their tents, end quote. So some say also that the existence of the Dogman was proven in what's known today as the Gable film. Uh, this was a film that was shot by Mike Gruza, who was then a teenager in the 1970s, when he supposedly captured a video depicting what appeared to be the Dogman um, in a very similar description as the one that Steve Cook laid out um, for his April Fool's Day hoax. Uh, since the viral video was released, Agruza has admitted that it was an elaborate hoax and that the video was doctored 
to include footage of uh, what appears to be the quote unquote dog man. Um, but, you know, since that video has been discredited, that hasn't stopped legends of the dog man from existing again within the popular imagination of Michiganders. Um, so just to wrap up kind of this story, once again, here's Rachel Clark. Um, so quote, for a long time, there were stories of large cats in Michigan that were sort of dismissed. And now we have cougar sightings. There's been quite a few in the last few months. So I'm not saying there's a dog man that's going to show up. However, nobody knows what's living in the forests of Michigan. And those forests of Michigan, I think, would be the perfect place to give that interpretation. When I think of all the different sightings that have happened over the years, it makes me think of, well, where did they happen? And some people have to know. And it would be interesting to think of an interpreter maybe even an interpreter of a nature trail um, or of a natural site to incorporate that folk tale into their whole tour to kind of diversify it and to state that these aren't just places of the natural world, but also um, signifiers of the human imagination. And to go to these different sites where the dogman was spotted and use that as a provocation to discuss the tale and to uh, tell about what the dogman was and the different contending stories and, you know, what year was this? Was this where the video was shot in the 1970s and so on and so forth? So, Gray, do you have anything to say about this? Yeah, absolutely. I think just as importantly as the location is, as you touched on, the provocation. Because if I'm not mistaken, the legend of the Dogman um, involves the Dogman making appearances every 10 years and on years ending in seven. And with that being said, I think on the next year ending in seven, 2027, would be a fantastic time for an interpreter to really take hold of this story. With so much technology in the world today that can detect changes in temperature, um, electromagnetic fields, even motion sensing technology, I think it's very important to provoke the audience into believing that they could be the ones who, in fact, find proof and shed light upon the dogman. And I'll take us to another tale up in northern Michigan, in the northern part of the Lower Peninsula. And this particular tale doesn't have to do with the woods or any roads or trails because it's in the middle of Lake Michigan towards the northwest. And this particular location is called Walgo Shans Lighthouse. This lighthouse was built in the mid-19th century, and it's a conical brick tower that sits above a burned-out shell of a round two-story dwelling as of now. But before, in its heyday, it was a pristine lighthouse and saved many, many sailors from hitting the shoals which it sat on to ensure that these sinking of ships would not happen and that everyone would get home safely. However, not everyone would make it back safely from Wagoshan's lighthouse. In fact, it is rather infamous for a haunting tale. During the 1800s, the lighthouse was kept by John Herman. He was well known for his practical jokes and heavy drinking on the job, according to Wago Shan's Lighthouse's preservation website. Legend has it that one night while in a stupor, he locked his assistant in the lantern room as a practical joke. When his assistant finally found his way out, Herman was nowhere to be found. 
Many people believe that he fell in the lake as he was never seen again. Future lighthouse keepers, however, though, think of it more ominously, as they often refuse the assignment to this lighthouse. The reasons? Those that did reported to have their chairs kicked out from underneath them when they fell asleep. Strangely, one keeper reported that coal was shoveled into the boiler with no one around. Now, does John Herman still keep the lighthouse at Wagoshans? Who knows? Well, I suppose in the same way that the dogman of northern Michigan is interpreted, I think that an interpreter could focus a lot upon the location. Um, as anyone in Michigan and basically the Midwest may know, uh, Lake Michigan is a massive entity and at many points is very inaccessible. Lighthouses in themselves have served as sites of hauntings and paranormal activity for years and years, and for this exact reason, and because the lighthouse in discussion here is a bit inaccessible, I think that only adds to the spooky ambiance that an interpreter would have to work with. Yeah, that's a great point, Gray. And you know, when I'm thinking about these kinds of hostile environments that human beings interact with, I think that there's a lot of potential here for an interpreter to make a lesson out of out of these stories and out of these documented happenings that take place in these isolated and stranded environments. You know, I think that there's a lot to be said for kind of almost a, a morbid fascination that human beings have with these isolated, distant environments just due to the fact that we don't interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think that when we have documented evidence of people either living or working um, or even passing away, you know, in these areas that are so unreachable to most of humanity, we have this morbid curiosity to interact with and make sense of the stories that happen there. You know, even though they, they do exist in the physical earth, um, they almost are like folklore in and of themselves just in virtue of the fact that they are so inaccessible to most people. Yeah, and when I think of Herman and his story and the fact that he's been created into an apparition, a ghost, because he likely fell into that lake when in a drunken stupor after playing a practical joke on one of his fellow lighthouse keepers, um, it really translates that fear of this adverse environment, this adverse climate, uh, you know, this, this place that's so far from our reach and so unknown to us that nobody has ever seen it other than them. And when they hear about it, they, they quiver in fear because of not only the ghost, but the fact that it's just you're in the middle of nowhere um, and a storm can hit any moment or you could fall on the lake and be swept away by a riptide. And these realities really um, demonstrate that uh, this, this creation of a ghost over someone's death is really just emblematic about a broader fear of a, of a place and being isolated and being in the unknown and being unsafe. Very well said. And to bring us a little bit closer to home is a folklore tale from my native Kalamazoo, where... In the downtown area, there's an auditorium, the Civic Auditorium, that has served candid audiences with a wide variety of dramatic and musical offerings for many, many years. 
The building, in addition to this, is known as the dwelling place of a well-known spirit by the name of Thelma. Thelma has been spoken of for almost the last half century by patrons, actors, and the employees of the building. And it's well accepted that the amateur actress threw herself to death sometime in the late 1950s when a rival of hers got a coveted role in a local production. Thelma committed suicide by throwing herself off a balcony and perished on the Civic Auditorium stage. After that happening, it's been reported that disembodied voices and mysterious piano playing has been heard. As well as this, the chandeliers above the box seats has been reported as swaying violently with no other explanation. Thelma made her debut as an apparition when she appeared during a production of the Lady House Blues when an actress who was standing alone backstage waiting for her cue turned and noticed an unidentified woman standing next to her. Whether her soul is trapped at the auditorium due to taking her own life on the stage or an eternal attachment to one of the antiques that were donated to the auditorium through the years, everyone has come to realize that Thelma will be a permanent resident at the Civic Auditorium. How might you interpret that? Well, I think it's, you know, we're, we were talking about like broad themes about how humanity feels about um, these kinds of like more universal fears and traumas and terrible things that happen in their lives and how the lighthouse reflected that in a way. And this reflects a whole different thing because this reflects an interpersonal strife that a lot of people go through. Um, this reflects a lot of different stories that are told that we haven't discussed, but that are told across Michigan folklore about lady, a lady in white or maybe a strange um, apparition of an individual who was wronged. And these people were wronged for various reasons, um, whether it be a false accusation of promiscuity leading to suicide, a death of a child leading to suicide. Uh, there are several, several reasons that uh, these stories have come about, but uh, the truth is stories like Thelma's story specifically reflects just a general human strife and struggle in living in social spheres and having to uh, having certain expectations and dreams and hopes and maybe having them shattered and then leading to an ultimate tragedy that in a lot of ways having those dreams and hopes shattered um, internally feels like death and Maybe this is sort of metaphorical about that. And I feel like an interpreter could really bring that broader theme into focus because in the tour model, theme comes first. And we talked about this in our first episode, but it's theme, organization, relevance, and then entertainment. And theme is super, super important. That's exactly what this would do. It would, brought it, it would bring it in thematically with these other tales in Michigan, and it would also bring it in thematically with struggles in the human condition. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jacob. And, you know, I want to bring it back to what you mentioned about metaphors. Um, and, you know, this story has me thinking a lot about how, how much traditional interpretation relies upon the existence of real, material, tangible artifacts in order to explain stories of the past, stories of the present, and, um, you know, the way that human beings have existed in their natural environments. 
And I think that these stories in particular, you know, are, are really ripe with the possibility of uh, teaching a folk psychology lesson here. I think that there's a lot to be said for exploring kind of, you know, obviously we have their traditional exterior phenomena that interpreters normally study and make sense of. But wouldn't it be interesting to some extent if we were able to uh, do an interpretive lesson about kind of the interior workings of the human condition? Um, you know, so when you mentioned metaphor, Jacob, I, I started thinking about how, you know, how much of these stories, as you were saying, are really just merely kind of reflections of a particular emotional state or, you know, of a social phenomenon that's happening, you know, in a particular culture at a particular time. You know, I think about the, the anecdote of the woman who encountered Thelma at the State Theater. I wonder how much of a connection there is between the story of Thelma herself and the story of the witness to Thelma. Maybe there are a lot of similarities lurking there that haven't been explored. Um, maybe, you know, when, when two people are experiencing very similar emotions, the way that those emotions manifest in their own mind um, can kind of bring about all of these wild tales and incredible, mysterious circumstances um, that, you know, eventually form their way into the folklore that we know today. So I'd be really curious to, to see kind of a lesson that is based not necessarily on what is only seen and what can only be proved by the scientific method, but those things in which, you know, we don't have as much tangible access to. And in a way, that's almost why we create apparitions and ghosts and unknown around these things, because internally they are deeply unknown to us. Um, they haunt us just like the apparitions haunt these buildings, these places and these memories. And maybe all the people who were defeated at the Civic Auditorium after a terrible play or a, uh, you know, a failure in their in their dreams and hopes. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I would be fascinated to think about how an interpreter could talk about that internal condition and the fallout from that and how maybe maybe to engage audience members to uh, think about their own personal struggles and strife and to think about how that could even be translated into a haunting or into an unknown situation and you know, and this and this like sits very, very thematically with the lighthouse, as we mentioned, you know, there's just things that humans fear. And, you know, maybe we could even tie this together with the dog man and state that in general, a fear of strange creatures in the woods, a fear of the woods, a fear of getting lost, a fear of being attacked. You know, all of these things are uh, a fear of the other, a thing that looks different and odd and something unfamiliar. Um, there are several other cryptid tales that are representative of that thought process. I mean, all of these things can be thematically unpacked in interpretation, and that's the kind of provocation that these types of talks could have on someone. So to wrap up our segment today, I'm going to bring you all up to the UP's Keweenaw Peninsula. So along the shores of Lake Superior lie the singing sands of Bat Greece. The sands on this beach are said to sing to anybody who visits and walks along the shores. The legend says that the singing comes from the spirit of a Native American maiden who lost her lover when he perished in Lake Superior. 
Her attempts to contact him are with the singing that she transmits through the sands. Visitors to the beach are encouraged to help the maiden find her lost lover. Just press the palms of your hands on the sands and rub hard, or just smack the sands with your palm. The noise it emits is like that of a puppy's bark or of rubbing a balloon. And you know, I'm thinking a lot about how the last stories we mentioned dealt with really complex themes about human psychology, the human condition, the way that some of our trauma and, you know, most morbid ideas can manifest into creating new realities for ourselves and both for the people uh, that these stories are passed down to. And I think that this uh, folklore is a little bit interesting because from what I can tell, the theme is a little bit more direct. I don't read this story so much as some complex narrative about the human condition as much as I read it as a really simple warning sign for people. You know, I think that the utility of this story is less so to entertain these wild, broad notions about, you know, the human spirit so much as it is basically a parable about not going to swim alone on a beach. And I think that, you know, that that doesn't take away from the grandeur of folklore and the grandeur of, you know, this story. I think that really it just goes to show that folklore can be used in a really versatile way. Folklore can tell a lot of different stories and the uses can be really broad. So, you know, whether we are attributing some deep philosophical meaning to the existence of a cryptid or a ghost, or whether we need to tell our younger siblings and our kids um, that we need to be careful when swimming in Lake Michigan. You know, I think that there are a lot of ways that these stories can manifest and their utility varies based on what is needed by a particular population or a particular person at a certain time. Thank you so much, Garrett, for your input. And although when we were talking about all these different Michigan folk tales and different cryptids and ghosts and, you know, maybe how we would interpret these within the context of contemporary ghost and cryptid explorations and interpretation standards, there, in fact, are a lot of places that are already doing it that are not in Michigan. And the first place we're going to talk about today is in Mansfield, Ohio, at Mansfield Prison. This location is often known as the filming location for Shawshank Redemption and several other famous Hollywood films. However, its history dates back way further than that. Uh, the site was constructed in 1886, and it is 250,000 square feet. It was constructed in the style of Gothic architecture, and it was often nicknamed Dracula's Castle as a result of that and its tumultuous history. It functioned as a prison for several years where guards as early as 1898 were in a New York Times article which detailed how prisoners were hung by their thumbs for protesting not being allowed to go, and they were also given one meal a day. These gracious treatment of prisoners, this very tumultuous atmosphere and the memories that came with it caused it to be rather infamous and eventually the ghost narratives came about, and individuals started saying that the prisoners who died there being mistreated by guards or being killed by their fellow cellmate, those prisoners, they lingered, they stuck around, their spirits hovering throughout this Dracula's castle, this gothic prison, this giant 
giant building that eventually fell into disrepair in the late 20th century due to diminishing funds and a need for space. And people have used this place in a lot of different ways since this prison function really left. For example, it was used as a site for several paranormal TV shows such as, as mentioned earlier, BuzzFeed Unsolved, Ghost Adventures, and more. These situations combine that popular media with the history and folklore and entertainment to maybe create a unique form of provocative interpretation. It also has several tour guides and tour opportunities that people can visit. It is a landmark historical site, and the institution has an archivist, the institution has programmers, and it functions very much like a house museum. It is a historic site, after all. And these types of tours that are offered for individuals, which is the type of interpretation that they do offer, can either be self-guided, where people are allowed to explore at their own will and read the interpretive signage, or be guided by individuals and focused on different topics, such as the relation of the institution to Hollywood and the films that were made there, or the stories of the prisoners themselves specifically who lived there, or even just a general private tour for anybody who is interested in a very specific topic that the interpreter can provide to the visitor. And these tours demonstrate uh, actually really interpreting at these paranormal sites and using the historic context and using that to proliferate these folk tales of ghosts and spirits that are tied to these very, very difficult histories that have happened at these institutions. And while we discussed with Garrett how interpreters or institutions in Michigan might discuss certain folklore, Kalamazoo itself is already host to some paranormal interpretation. Since 1981, the Kalamazoo Junior Chamber International Group, better known as the Jaycees, have held a haunted event in the month of October in our community. In 2007, the Ghosts of Kalamazoo Historic Tour was born, and with it, fascination regarding Kalamazoo's macabre history has grown substantially. This tour shares many of the bizarre and eerie stories that the city of Kalamazoo has to offer, most of which are previously unheard by the public. For example, it is Bronson Park, the peaceful area of greenery dotted with a fountain and statues, which is right in the heart of downtown Kalamazoo. Though many people see this park as nothing more than a serene place amid the otherwise active city, the location has a very troubled past. Those who have visited the Kalamazoo Valley Museum may be aware of the appearance made by former President Abraham Lincoln in our very own Bronson Park, though at the time he was a lawyer speaking in a rally for the Republican presidential nominee John Fremont. As mentioned in the book The Haunted History of Kalamazoo, at the time, the Republican Party thought that the up-and-coming lawyer was too conservative on anti-slavery issues. For many decades, rumors have arisen that the apparition of Lincoln has been cited throughout the park. This has gone on to cause a great deal of speculation as to why such a prominent figure in our nation's history would dwell in a place such as downtown Kalamazoo. The authors of the book Nicole Bray and Robert DeShane surmised that it may be because this is the one time that he spoke and no one listened. 
Others have speculated that it may not be Lincoln who resides in the park, but instead entities with a connection to the Civil War cannon that is found there. The cannon, used in the war by the Union Army, clearly already bears an affiliation with death, not unlike those in the fields of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which is globally renowned as a location for paranormal activity. According to the authors, paranormal experts agree that it is not only the battlegrounds that hold paranormal energy. These experts feel that in many cases it may be the weapons of the war themselves to which the spirits are tied. In that sense, it could very well be the apparitions of Union soldiers that reside in their downtown park. Such tours, like the one given in Kalamazoo, provoke audiences into looking past what might be readily available in front of their eyes and into the realm of the paranormal. Kalamazoo, that's local. Ohio, it's not that far away. But these practices, they proliferate even further down south in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is one of the premier and most famous sites for paranormal interpretation. These tours, they proliferate particularly in the New Orleans French Quarter, which is a very old portion of the city and has a rich cultural folklore around many of its French colonial buildings. This folklore states that these places are haunted by former residents who died by misfortune, disasters, and disease, if not anything more. According to a tour website, historical research is combined with an ancient art of storytelling. Consciously, the theme is that this folklore is rooted in history, which is very true in many cases, but is much more complicated. To bring this conversation further, let's look at how Royal Carriages, a specific tour group, interprets the La Lorie Mansion, which was the former residence of Madame Delphine La Lorie. To quote their website, Most know of this Creole woman from America Horror Story, Season 3, Coven, filmed in New Orleans just a few years ago. While the FX TV show was horrifying, what actually happened inside this private residence on Royal Street was truly sadistic and terrifying. It's no wonder that this gorgeous 1830s home has sat unoccupied for over a hundred years. The current owner, whom we've taken on a carriage ride on several occasions, seems to be in love with the mystery of his haunted property, and only visits his French Quarter home a few times each year, knowing that countless people underwent such odd medical experiments and torture. Would you rest easy at night? Now that's great, right? So that's a very classic kind of spooky introduction. And it hints at the fact that, okay, this is a historical building. This has been around for a very long time, and it's a story that actually happened. But the issue with this is that in the description, it doesn't describe who was particularly tortured. And these were slaves. Up in the attic, Madame Delphine Lalaurie would take the individuals who she had enslaved and would torture them and would kill them and would do terrible medical experiments on them. And although she was run out of town by a group of angry townsfolk who very much disdained her treatment of these individuals, despite the vast amount of racism that existed in America at the time, it still reflects some broader themes in that society. It reflects the mistreatment of humans who were wrongfully owned due to their skin color. Madame Delphine La Lorie really committed 
a hate crime up in that attic. She she tortured people because she saw them not only because she was just the sadist, but because she saw them as lesser because she was she was prejudiced against these people and uh, the institution of slavery at the time allowed this to happen in general, allowed her to have this power over these individuals so she could do such terrible things to humans. And by sensationalizing this and making it an entertaining spectacle, that takes out the whole context of the fact that she was a slave owner and that these people up here were tortured and brutally treated and killed because of the fact that they were people of color. And this speaks a lot of weight to general historical interpretation of these paranormal sites and how the entertainment tends to be coming first at a lot of these places. And it brings us to our final point in this whole podcast, which is how can paranormal interpretation grow? How can we provide that contextualization? Because at somewhere like the La Lorie Mansion, this tour obviously is not providing that context of slavery in the United States and the racial uh, context that allowed this to happen, allowed these people to be killed. And in a way, it's, it's, really, a, it's really a tragic sight. It's a very, very sad place, the place for mourning, but it's treated as a sort of entertaining spectacle, a very fun place to get your adrenaline going and to be entertained. But it's completely missing a lot of context. And I think this context is the way that this paranormal interpretation can grow. When we think about the Tor model that we introduced in episode one, the the whole point of that interpretive model is to provide a stepping stone kind of guide on how to interpret various things. And in this model, the first thing that comes up is always theme. And most of these tours, especially with the La Lorie Mansion, and I think back to Mansfield as well with all their ghost center tours, Really, the theme in these situations is spooky or scary or it's not, it doesn't contextualize it in a wholesome way. And the theme is also given a back seat. Entertainment comes first. And in the tour model, the line of importance is theme, organization, relevance, and entertainment. Entertainment is important, but it comes last because without the other three things, uh, the wholesome nature of the interpretive experience is lost and it's not contextualized. And you run into issues like this where nobody talks about the context of slavery at the La Lorie Mansion, what allowed that to happen. No one talks about the fact that likely Madame La Lorie's racism is a large reason why she felt so justified in committing these sadist acts. And it also does not thematically place it within the broad mourning of slavery and the mourning of the people lost due to that institution who were against their will uh, kept uh, and owned by people. So I don't know what you think about this, Gray, but I think there's definitely a lot of work to be done in the field of paranormal interpretation from this perspective 
uh, particularly, and I guess this is like a social justice perspective I'm giving out right now, but it could also like go on beyond social justice, um, just in general, like just that contextualization across the board. Yeah, I definitely agree. At many sites, and all too often, it's been made clear that interpreters and the institutions that they're a part of put the emphasis on the wrong things. Now, it's of course of high importance to stress provocation, but as Jacob has outlined for us, this needs to be at the end of the interpretive model. However, it is of large importance when it is in the right context. As well as this, it's important to take into account what cryptids and the paranormal in general represent for the general public, which for many is a desire by those with a curious mind to pursue something beautiful and extraordinary in what they might otherwise consider a very mundane world. Provocation, when it's done in a proper context, can make a world of difference. Because rather than giving people facts and trying to influence their decisions, the field of paranormal interpretation can grow by encouraging people to engage and draw their own conclusions or make their own speculations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, provocation and entertainment, um, even though it's at the end of that tour model, is still extremely important. And ultimately, this is what hooks people on these folk tales and gets them interested so they can draw their own conclusions. And uh, to help them draw their own conclusions, that's the reason why the model exists. It's a better way to give them the information holistically and to provide all of the contexts uh, and to uh, give them the opportunity to make their own conclusions because, um, as said before, these, uh, these historic contexts are not given, and when they're not provided, it doesn't really make it easy for people to draw their own conclusions. Instead, they're handed a spooky narrative, um, and then they go on their way, and they likely forget about their experience. But when you give it such a more hefty weight in regards to the historic context and give it a more holistic meaning then it really places this folklore within a broader narrative. And that that's the theme right there. And it makes it easier to organize and it makes it more relevant to people's lives. So therefore they can take it home with them and do exactly that, draw their own conclusions from that experience. And, um, and I mentioned it doesn't always have to be related to social justice. That is a way that um, paranormal interpretation can grow greatly and, um, that's a very hot topic right now in the field of interpretation is uh, adhering and listening to uh, social justice initiatives. But, um, for example, in a place like uh, Mansfield Prison or in Kalamazoo, um, the same thing can apply in regards to just um, educating on the place and what it meant. Um, Mansfield does a pretty good job at it. They uh, provide the historic context and there are paranormal tours that center themselves around that, but they try to, of course, give that thematic um, explanation of what it was like to be a prisoner and um, what it meant to be a prisoner and what the mistreatment of prisoners was like and how that was thematic across other prisons in the United States. And they do a good job at that. But yeah, definitely most tours are lacking that because they put that provocation, what you're talking about first and and that's important, but it's definitely not the end-all be-all. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And personally, 
what I take away from this episode is that there needs to be an equilibrium between provocation and contextualization. Because while they're both of enormous importance in these paranormal sites of interpretation, uh, it's clear that they work off of each other, but in a different way. While provocation is what engages the audience, contextualization is what they should really be taking away from it. In this way, many of these sites of paranormal interpretation could improve by promoting the contextualization in the forefront and putting the provocation a bit on the back burner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And maybe not even putting the provocation in the back burner, but just like really finding that balance, being able to realize that we're allowed to allow people to be entertained and have a fun provoking experience and to be maybe a little spooked because that's part of that folkloric experience just to naturally have that adrenaline driven experience. But when that's everything in the historic context or just the general context of the folktale takes such a back seat that such important details to making your own conclusion about it are left out. It just leads to a completely vapid experience. And oftentimes the context I feel uh, can give people a more holistic and wholesome experience. And I I guess that's what we're trying to get to in the end of this, because these are definitely very complicated ideas to work through. But um, in the end, when you're looking at the Torah model, um, a lot of people see that, I think, as a sort of continuum. But it's more than a continuum. Uh, They all exist in relation to each other. And the theme, that context, and the E, that entertainment, that provocation, they should really find a a core balance with that organization, with that relevance, and they should all coexist in a really cohesive way. And unfortunately, right now in paranormal interpretation, that is not so commonplace. And I feel that in our quick fire, um, we kind of demonstrated that this is definitely a possibility that these sites can in fact do this, that even Mansfield Prison in its variety of interpretive programs and different types of tours allows that capability. And it'd be nice to see in the future these folk tales of cryptids, ghosts, and creatures give people holistic experiences that they can take home with them and they can bring back into their own history, heritage, and culture. I couldn't agree more. That is what interpretation is all about. Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast. For bibliography, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and visit us in two weeks when we will talk about approaches and difficult histories.